All right. If you have your Bibles with you today, hope you do. I'll ask you to open them up to the book of Exodus, to the book of Exodus. We're still in our series here in Exodus where we've been going through this grand epic, this journey of the people of God as they go through a time of slavery and here now God beginning the liberation process in their life. Today we'll be covering two chapters, chapters five and chapter six. The point of this series is really for us to come to know God in a deeper way. When we come to know God in a deeper way, our faith is built up. We become people who are able to hear his voice better because we recognize his move in our life. Um, It's one thing to know about God. That's simply not what we want to do. We want to know who God is in a close, deep, intimate way. Let's do a quick recap. We learned two weeks ago that God is the God who moves, that God had brought the nation of Israel here into Egypt for this time through uh, one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, uh, the 12 tribes had made their way into Egypt, supernaturally God providing for them. They were there, they lived in peace with the Egyptian people until a new ruler, a pharaoh, came to power in Egypt and he was a little insecure, a little bit um, not trusting of the, of the Hebrew people and he had a plan. He said, we have to put this nation down, we have to stop them from growing because if we don't, they'll get too powerful and they'll overtake us. Uh, we learned in that lesson that that was against the plan of God, right? Back in the book of Genesis, God had promised Abram that he would make a great nation of his people. And that was an Israelite nation. So when this Pharaoh rose up and said, we need to stop this people, he wasn't just coming against Israel. He was coming against the plan of God. And one thing we learned that week is that nothing, no thing, no person, nothing on earth will ever stop the plan of God. Amen. And as much as Pharaoh tried, the people of Israel grew and became more powerful, both in number uh, and in in power. Uh, He was cruel to them. He was enslaving them. He was treating them uh, brutally with the things that he was requesting them to do. Um, There was this edict that went out from the Pharaoh that all firstborn children of the Hebrew people would be murdered, would not be allowed, the boys specifically. There were some midwives who disobeyed Pharaoh. They feared God and they let the children live. And that made Pharaoh even angrier because they weren't listening to him. So he said, okay, we're going to turn it up a notch. All firstborn will now be put into the river to drown. Um, And again, there was a, a woman who birthed a son. His name was Moses, right? They put him in a little reed basket. Uh, kind of symbol, symbolic of the Ark of the Covenant, and his sister launched him out into the river, and Pharaoh's own teenage daughter finds Moses, and she disobeys her father, and she doesn't uh, drown the baby, but she keeps it and raises it as her own. Moses grew. He grew to become a person who was Egyptian royalty. He was a prince. He had power. He had prestige. He had knowledge. He was trained. But God had a call on Moses' life. And Moses began to see the mistreatment of his people. That began to anger him. And in, in a fit of rage at the mistreatment of one of his own, Moses kills an Egyptian citizen. Now this gets Moses in trouble with the Egyptians. They don't like Moses anymore. Uh, the Hebrews, they don't like Moses because he was considered uh, an, an, an Egyptian. He was considered a ruler, someone who was part of the oppressive government. So the Hebrews don't like Moses. The Egyptians don't like Moses. So Moses leaves. He goes to the desert. He gets married. And for 40 years, he does the work of a shepherd. 
He's leading sheep for 40 years. And last year we learned that we serve a God who hears, right? God heard the cries of his people and through a burning bush experience, Moses experiences the call of God on his life. And really what God is telling Moses is he's saying, I'm going to rescue my people. Moses gets really excited over that, but then God drops a bombshell and he says, but I'm going to use you to do it. And Moses is left shocked. What? Me? I can't even speak straight. I'm just a shepherd. I have nothing. But God says, what's in your hands, right? And we learn that the God who hears will never put you too far out in front of yourself. But he will take what you have right there in that moment and he will use it. He will grow it. He will multiply it. And us, we have to just agree and cooperate with God as we work part of his plan. Because God uses all of us. So now we come here to chapter 5 where Moses has received this call from God and now he's ready to execute the plan of God. A few weeks ago, my family and I were returning from Florida. We were on a plane trip coming back to Chicago and um, as I looked out the window, uh, there was beautiful high clouds. We were cruising at our altitude at about 35, 36,000 feet. It was a beautiful flight, and then as I looked out the windows, these clouds that were, I mean, we couldn't get above them. These were very high clouds. Uh, When I looked out the window, I noticed some of them started to turn dark. I believe I have a picture of them here. I mean, these were massive, massive clouds. You can see, if you see this out your plane window, you're thinking, whoa. Okay, and what turned these bright, kind of powder, cotton-looking clouds began to turn dark. And the, the plane began to shake a little bit. How many of you have ever experienced turbulence on a flight, right? We've been through turbulence. Severe turbulence, though, can take an unbeliever and make them question their faith really quick, right? Now, one thing you need to understand is that turbulence is super normal. We don't like the feeling of it, though. It makes you uneasy. It makes you unsettled when you're there, you know, tens of thousands of feet above the air. The plane begins to shake a little bit. It's just a scientific phenomenon. It's unstable air. The plane is shaking a little bit. But you as a passenger, when you're riding along, you have no control over what's happening. You begin to ask some questions, don't you? I know it's not only me. But you begin to wonder, who's the pilot on this plane? And are they equipped to handle this thing? Have they been trained right? Do they have experience flying through, through, through uh, clouds like this that were, that were growing darker and darker as we went along? It even got so bad, I, I gave my youngest daughter some uh, soundproof headphones. And I said, here, just put these on and watch something. Um, because I didn't want her to, I was trying to distract her from what was happening outside of the window. We ask that question, who's in control here? And I don't know about you, sometimes in life we wonder, God, are you really in control, right? What we're going to learn over Exodus 5 and 6 is that we serve a God who's always in control. And that should come as an encouragement to you today if you're feeling like, like your life is a little bit coming off of the rails, And you find yourself questioning and wondering, like, God, do you see me? Are you in this thing? I don't feel like you're working. Like, God, are you really in control? Chapters 5 and 6 remind us that God is in control. In chapter 5, Aaron and Moses 
they have met with the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel heard that Moses had spoken with God um, and as Aaron, because Aaron was the one speaking. Remember, we learned that last week as well, that Moses was insecure. So God says, fine, take your brother with you. He'll be the one to do the talking. You just hold the staff and perform the miracles. So as Aaron's telling them, look, my brother has spoken with God. We've been sent here to liberate the people of Israel. The people of Israel begin to grow in faith. And at the end of chapter four, we learn that they fall and they worship God. So this is like a spiritual high moment for Moses. You could imagine he's saying, wow, these people actually listen to us, Aaron. They're ready to follow us. They believe that God is moving here. And now they go from this real spiritual high. Now they got to do something super bold. They got to go and speak to Pharaoh. They got to speak to Pharaoh. So looking here at Exodus chapter five, beginning in verse one. We'll read to verse eight. This is what the word of God says. It says, after this presentation to Israel's leaders, again, Moses and Aaron had just spoken to the leaders of Israel and the people were excited. They worshiped God. They were coming off of this spiritual mountaintop. Now they went to speak to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the leader of of Egypt. And they told him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival in my honor in the wilderness. Is that so? Retorted Pharaoh. And who is the Lord? And why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. You need to understand the boldness that it took for these two Hebrew men to step before the most powerful man in the world at the time and ask them to let their people go. Uh, not only was he the most powerful man in the world at the time, militarily, uh, politically, probably financially, uh, it was the world's biggest empire at the time, and this was the man at the very top of it. Not only was he the most powerful man in the world, but he was viewed as God. The Egyptians worshiped him as a living, breathing human God. And here Aaron and Moses are going to go before this God man and throw the name of the Lord at him to say, look, not your God and not you, but the God of your enslaved people says, let them go. This was a bold, bold moment for Aaron and for Moses. And listen to the reply of Pharaoh. He says, I don't know your Lord. I don't know your God. So no, I'm not going to let them go. Continuing on, but Aaron and Moses persisted. The God of the Hebrews has met with us, they declared. So let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness so we can offer sacrifices to our Lord, our God. If we don't, he will kill us with a plague or with the sword. Now that was a good play there because one thing that Pharaoh didn't want was dead slaves because dead slaves are no good for him. So maybe you would think, oh, this is backing Pharaoh into a corner. Pharaoh replied, Moses and Aaron, why are you distracting the people from their tasks? Get back to work. Look, there are many people in the land and you are stopping them from their work. That same day, Pharaoh sent this order to the Egyptian slave drivers and the Israelite foremen. You see, the Israelites had foremen, they were Hebrews who were like supervisors 
over their own kind. And they were kind of complicit with the slave owners. They were like the Uncle Toms of the Israelite nation. They, they were treated a little bit better. They were the foremen. They were the supervisors. They were complicit with the slave owners, but they were still Israelite in nationality. And Pharaoh says, tell them to get back to work. Oh, and by the way, do not supply any more straw for making bricks. Make the people get it themselves, but still require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out. Let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. So here Pharaoh pretty much spits in the face of Moses and Aaron, tells them no, but on top of that says, let's make life even more miserable for the Israelites. Let's not provide straw when they make their bricks. Make them go get it on their own. The ruthlessness here of Pharaoh making the situation worse. A turbulent nation now begins to see the clouds grow darker in the skies. And for the next 10 verses, you could see for yourself exactly how ruthless and brutal Pharaoh and his slave masters are to the nation of Israel. It gets worse for them. And it's often the case when things in your life go bad. The people blame each other and the people begin to blame God. Let's jump ahead to verse 20. Exodus 5, verse 20. It says, as they left Pharaoh's court, the they there refers to these Israelite foremen, to these supervisors who were Hebrews, but were working for the Egyptians. They were there to complain to Pharaoh saying, look, you're making our job impossible. We need straw to make these bricks. Without the straw, we can't make bricks. The bricks won't hold, the bricks will break, and you're making our job twice as hard, three times as hard. We need the straw, and Pharaoh says, no straw for you. And now these foremen, they leave this meeting and they're angry. And as they left the court, they confronted Moses and Aaron who were waiting outside for them. And the foreman said to them, may the Lord judge and punish you for making us stink before the Pharaoh and his officials. These men are griping at Moses and Aaron, and they're saying, man, may the Lord judge you, and may the Lord punish you, because now you've ruined our relationship with the boss, and in his eyes, we stink, we're failures, and he's making our life even worse. He says, you have put a sword into their hands, an excuse to kill us. So Moses went back to the Lord. I want you to notice something here. Moses had just come off of this spiritual high of this meeting he had with these very people who said, we believe you, we trust God, we will, we will back you 100%. Now he's at an all-time low. But he still goes back to the Lord. He still goes back to the Lord. Moses went back to the Lord and he protested, why have you brought all this trouble on your own people, Lord? Why did you send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh as your spokesman, he has been even more brutal to your people and you have done nothing to rescue them. Ooh, man, there's so much here to unpack. Going from this spiritual high 
to now to the bottom of the barrel where Moses is before God and saying, why did you choose me? Why am I even doing this? And this big promise you had, you haven't done a thing, God. Through this, this is the first thing we learn. You could write this down, that in the highs and in the lows, God is still in control. That no matter whether you're in the highs of your spiritual journey and in your lows of your spiritual journey, God is still in control. I think we have that slide there of that first point. Through the highs and the lows, God is in control. As I said, as we were flying through this storm, the clouds began to change on this flight. They grew darker. And in the distance, I could see lightning through these clouds. And just looking out the windows, I knew that there was no way we would be able to fly above these clouds. We were not getting above this storm. I was wondering, does this pilot have control? Is this guy gonna do his job? Now, I wasn't wondering that when we were flying through the crystal blue skies. And isn't that us in life? Sometimes when you're in the point in your life where it's nothing but clear skies and it's smooth sailing, none of us question God. I would be bold to say some of us don't even think about God. We're just on cruise control. But when we see this, the clouds begin to change, when you see the lows begin to come in, when the, when the clouds begin to darken and the thunder begins to rumble, that's when we like to question God. And one thing we need to understand is that through the highs and through the lows, no matter what the clouds look like, God is in control. A pilot was still in the cockpit of that plane, no matter what kind of color was in the sky. I needed to embrace that. I needed to understand that. And here, Moses needed to understand that no matter whether he was on the mountaintop or in the valley, God was in control. Because here he's wondering, God, are you even really there? And, and, and what I appreciate about this scripture is that when you're journeying with God, some of us will think like trouble is not supposed to come our way. Like if you're a believer in God, you're not supposed to suffer. If you believe in Jesus, it's supposed to be all rainbows and, and pixie dust. And how many know that's not true? We will suffer. You will endure hard times. As a matter of fact, God had foretold this very moment 500 years previously to Abram when he said for 400 years your people will be in slavery they knew this was bound to happen Jesus says this to us this is in John 16 he says I have told you so this so with this you may have peace in me here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows this is Jesus saying hey as a person you live in a broken world and whether as a result of living in a broken world, your own bad choices or the bad choices of somebody else, you will suffer in this life. You will experience hardship and sorrows in this life. But look at the second part of this verse. Jesus says, but take heart, but be encouraged because I have overcome the world. Difficulty in life will come, but we have the promise that God himself will be there with us in every situation. First Peter chapter 4, this is the message translation. I, I, I like how this reads. It says, friends, when life gets really difficult, 
don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. Hey, God doesn't punch a clock. God doesn't step off of the shift. God is always at work. God is always moving and God is always on control. He says, instead, be glad that you are in the very thick of what Christ experienced. This is a spiritual refining process with glory just around the corner. Now you might be asking, what was God doing here? It's a good question. What was God doing at this time? Because it's hard to see anything good right now in this situation. Let's consider a few things. Let's take Moses. Just in the previous chapter, here was a guy who didn't even want to answer the call. And now he's so fired up that God is not doing anything about it. God, you got to do more because we got to get these people free. You see the change in the heart in Moses, who a chapter ago didn't even want to go do this. And now he's angry at God that God isn't doing enough. So God was working on Moses' heart. And your season of difficulty, and your season of tempting, and your season of trial, God is refining your heart as well. What was God doing with Pharaoh? God was using this time to harden Pharaoh's heart. Hey, this situation needed to get worse before it got better. If Pharaoh would have just said, okay, cool, go. What would the nation of Israel have done? They would have said, oh, okay, let's go. But for them to see the true power of God, the Pharaoh's heart needed to be hardened. And God was doing that through this process as this man thumbs his nose at the God of the Hebrews. And what about the nation of Israel? Was God using this time to work on them? Oh, he was. This was a stiff-necked, stubborn people. And these choices that they were making of sometimes yes and sometimes no, of, of complaining and then praising, of complaining then praising, it would take 40 years in the desert to break this nation out of that cycle. God was already working in the ups And in the downs, you can take heart that God's delays always have a purpose, even though we don't like delays. The hard times in life, they don't disprove that God doesn't exist, just like turbulence in a plane doesn't prove that there's no pilot in the cockpit. God is always in control. We have someone who knows where we are. We have someone who knows the journey ahead. We know who some, we, we have someone who can navigate the path before us. And we have someone who will never abandon us or leave us. That's the God that we serve. And in your highs and in your lows, you need to know that God is in control. You can trust him. You can trust him. The second thing we learn from here is that the promises of God remind you that he is in control. How will God respond to Moses? And how does God respond to you in moments where you come before him and you're complaining to him and you're saying, why did you send me? You haven't done anything. We just get, uh, keep be, being stepped on God. What are you doing? What's going on? Are you even in control? How does God typically answer in that moment? Chapter six reveals to us the heart of God. And his promises remind you, if you're ever in question about God, are you in control? Be mindful of his promises for your life. Look at God's response here in chapter six. He says, then the Lord told Moses, 
He says, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. When he feels the force of my strong hand, he will let the people go. In fact, he will force them to leave his land. God's responding and he says, Moses, just wait. Just wait. Now, verses 2 through 8. Man, you should block these scriptures out, hang them on your refrigerator, put them in your purse. If you want to know God's heart for you, Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 through 8 are some of the most powerful scriptures in the entire Bible. Because it's God reminding Moses in this moment of him having difficulty and challenge who God is and what God's heart is for his people. And if you're ever in a place where you find yourself doubting or wondering, what is God's heart for me? Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 through 8 should be one of the first things you run to. This should be a word that's hidden in your heart dug deep in the soil of your heart that no person or no thing or no situation could ever root out. This is a word that's got to be implanted into your soul. It's how powerful and how meaningful it is. Because I want you to notice here what God is doing. He's reminding Moses of his promises. This is God's response. Listen, it says, God said to Moses, I am Yahweh, the Lord. He, I want you to notice the repetitiveness of the I statements and the I will statements. I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty, but I did not reveal my name Yahweh to them. This is so important. Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew Jehovah, but they didn't know Yahweh. You see, they knew Jehovah, they knew El Shaddai, but the name Yahweh hadn't been revealed to them the way it was revealed to Moses. You see, the difference here was that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they knew God as the promise maker. Moses was gonna get to know God as the promise keeper. You see the difference there. You see the process of Genesco here. Uh, God is leading Moses into a deeper, closer, uh, an intimate relationship with him as he reveals more of his character and his heart to him. Hey, I'm just not only Jehovah. I'm not only El Shaddai. I am Yahweh, and I'm reminding you of that. Your forefathers didn't know me that way, but you're getting to know me that way. So Moses, you will know me not only as the promise maker, you will know me as the promise keeper. He's leading him, he's leading him, he's loving him through his doubt, through his moment of insecurity, through his moment of wondering, God, are you there? What does God say? I am Yahweh, Moses. I'm revealing myself to you more and more and more each time. He says, I have reaffirmed my covenant with them. He's reminding Moses of the promises of God. Under its terms, I promised, I promised to give them the land of Canaan where they were living as foreigners, you can be sure that I have heard the groans of the people of Israel who are now slaves to the Egyptians, and I am well aware of my covenant with them. And if you're ever wondering, God, are your promises still true for me? God is well aware of them, 
and he reaffirms them. He says, therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And here they go, the first of seven, seven I will statements. I will free you. God's heart is to free you from oppression, from addiction, from bad habits, from generational cycles, from, from, from brokenness, from, from, from farness, from, from abandonment. God wants to free you from all of that. I will free you from your oppression. I will rescue you. That means God wants to bring you out. He wants to pick you up in his hand. He wants to bring you close to him. He wants to protect you. He wants to preserve you. He wants to bring you through the wilderness. God wants to rescue you, just like he wants to rescue them from slavery in Egypt. He says, I will redeem you. That means I will purchase you back. I will make you whole. I will put you back together. Hey, your brokenness won't last forever because I will heal the brokenness of your heart. I will redeem you with the powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you. Oh, that means God wants to call you his own. That means what God claims, no one else has claim over you. The enemy cannot claim you. Drug addiction can't claim you. Sickness can't claim you. There's nothing under the sun that could claim you when God has said, this is one of my own. He says, I will claim you as one of my own people and I will be your God. That means I will perform signs and wonders in your life that you could use to point people to say, it wasn't me, it was him. Look at what he's done in my life. Look at the next part. This is why we're reading this book, church. This is why we're doing this. This is why we're here. Then you will what? Then you will what? Then you will what? Then you will what? Then you will Janesco me. Then you will know me, Moses. Because if you knew me like this, you wouldn't be here wondering what I'm going to do. It says, then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from the oppression in Egypt. He continues and he says, I will bring you into the land. That means God's going to provide. And where God provides, he guides, he leads, he coaches, he makes a way where there is no way. God wants to bring you into the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then I will give it to you because our God is a giving God. Our God loves to give. Our God loves to give so much. He gave us his son. He gives us life. He gives us gifts. He gives us talent. He gives us time. He gives us energy. He gives us a calling he gives us a mission a purpose in life because our God gives he said I will give it to you as your very own possession for I am the Lord you want to know what I'm doing Moses here's what I'm doing if you're ever wondering is God in control be reminded of his promises for you this is the gospel in the Old Testament. Because the very things that God is saying here, he will do for the nation of Israel. Jesus came and did for us. We need reminders, don't we? We get forgetful, don't we? I think I have a picture of those clouds on the plane. If we could pull up the next picture of those clouds. You could see the lightning began to flow through them. And as the plane shook a little bit, 
And as we were heading right for these clouds, I'm taking these pictures right outside my window. You can see the engine right there, this lightning and thunder through these probably 50,000 foot high clouds. Right in the middle of that, I hear, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. I told my daughter, I said, just keep your headphones on. Just keep them on. Keep them on. He said, we're seeing some storms here. We'll be navigating around them. Nothing to worry about. We'll keep the seatbelt sign on. Just sit back, relax, enjoy the flow. Something so simple was like, he knows. Hey, he's probably in control. He's going to navigate around these wild-looking clouds. Because for a moment there, it was like, does he see them? He's not heading for them, is he? Sometimes those reminders settle our soul and they tell us, man, someone is looking out for me. Someone's in control of this thing. And, and man, if you're ever in that place where you need to be reminded, God, are you in control? This word reminds us that God is in control. You know, we never question the pilot. When you step onto a plane, you don't go to the cockpit and say, okay, let me see your license. I want to see your training records. I want to know, you know, the last four of your social. I want to know your bank account, your medical history. None of us ever do that. We trust that the airline companies did that for us, right? But when it comes to God, man, we love questioning his credentials, don't we? We won't question a pilot on a flight. But we'll question El Shaddai, the God of the heavens. And here God is saying, Moses, don't question me. Trust me, because this is my promises to you. I, I love that in answering Moses' question, God is shifting his eyes from Pharaoh back to God, right? And if there's one thing that will disturb you, that will make you live in doubt, that will cause you to, to be thrown off the path, it's when we focus too much on, on the challenges and we don't focus enough on God. And what God is really telling Moses here is he's saying, Moses, stop looking at Pharaoh, Look at me. Stop listening to Pharaoh and to the people. Listen to me. And it's one way that we handle this, right? Uh, uh, Hebrews 12, 2 says we do this. It's, it's talking about here about running the race with endurance, um, the race that we've been set out to run your life race with endurance. Look at Hebrews 12, 2. It says we do this by what? By keeping our eyes on Jesus. You see, we need to be reminded when you're going through those Moses moments where you're panicking, where you're freaking out, what's going to happen? Everything is falling apart. God, hey, hey, don't look so much at the issues. Look at Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Jesus is who? The champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, and we could shout amen in confidence to that. So God just reminds Moses of who he is. Verse 9 in chapter 6. So Moses, I want you to notice this time, Aaron is not with him. Aaron isn't going to speak this because Moses, at the beginning of our, of our study today, he was on the mountaintop, then he went to the valley low, and now he's back where? 
on the mountaintop again because God has just reminded him of his promises. And now Moses is so energized, Moses is so spiritually full, he's going to go speak to the people of Israel. So Moses told the people of Israel what the Lord had said, but they refused to listen anymore. So Moses started high, went low, went back up again, and guess what? Comes crashing back down to earth. Can any of you relate to this? Isn't this your walk with God? They refused to listen anymore. They had become too discouraged by the brutality of their slavery. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go back to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and tell him to let the people of Israel leave his country. But Lord, Moses objected, my own people won't listen to me anymore. How can I expect Pharaoh to listen? I'm such a clumsy speaker. All the insecurities, all the issues, all the excuses coming back up in Moses' life. But the Lord spoke to Moses, man, the graciousness and the patience of God. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them orders for the Israelites and for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord commanded Moses and Aaron to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. The third thing, for you to fully believe that God is in control, you need to guard your heart. Guarding your heart protects you to believe that God is in control. If you're having a, a, just real talk, and I want to finish today's teaching with some real practical steps here, some things you could put in practice before you leave this, this service. If you're struggling with, is God in control? It's, it's probably an issue uh, of doubt that's been built up into your heart, of trusting God, of having faith in God, and that's a result of not guarding your heart. Uh, the word says that the people in Israel had grown despondent that word in Hebrew means short of breath. They literally didn't have breath. They were so desperate. They were so beat down. They were so hopeless that they didn't even have breath to breathe. Have you ever had moments where you feel like you're short on breath because of how heavy life is on you? That's how the Israelites felt here. They were totally discouraged. They just couldn't take anymore. Hey, Moses, we don't, we don't even want to hear all that God business anymore. You know what? Just, just let us stay here, work, and die. They were so discouraged. Their spirits were broken. They were ready to give up. And they blamed God and they blamed Moses and they doubted Moses and they doubted God. They were wondering, where is the rescue? Obviously, God is not in control because look at our life. It's falling apart. Amen. Hebrews 4, 20, or Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. If you are not guarding your heart, you will struggle to believe that God is in control because of discouragement, because of despondency, because of having your eyes fixed on the issues and not on him. Discouragement comes when pain and difficulty of the harsh situations skew your views on God. I, I understand when we could get so laser focused on our issues that we forget where God is. And that's what the people we're living through right now. Now, what should you do? How do you guard your heart? Um, listen, you must guard your heart because it's valuable. Look at that scripture. It says it determines... 
the course of your life. Your heart determines everything that you do in your life, your emotions, your, your feelings, your attitudes, that's your heart. It determines the course of your life. So you need to guard it because it's valuable. You need to guard it because it's constantly under attack. The enemy will always go for the heart because he knows if he could harden your heart, it's like a domino. The first one is your heart. Once he has your heart, everything else will follow. So I want to leave you with this. Four practices to keep your heart healthy. I'm going to make these really quick. But man, these are so beneficial. Four practices to keep your heart healthy. Because if you want to believe that God is in control, you need to guard your heart. The first one is reflection. The practice of reflection you need to have regular quiet times where you disconnect from the busyness of life to pray, to seek God, to breathe, to journal, but to have a quiet moment where you could settle your heart from it taking the pounding that it takes day after day after day. You need to have separated, dedicated, quiet time where you could reflect, God, what are you saying and what am I doing about it? So the practice of reflection the second practice is the practice of rest. Listen, God has given you an off switch. Use it, use it. You should look for ways to get a appropriate sleep, to practice the Sabbath, a day where you totally turn off. And you should incorporate regular seasons of fasting in there where you could rest from your appetites that you have as well. So reflection, rest, the third one is recreation. Now I'm not talking about amusement. Amusement can drain you. If you've ever been on a vacation to Disney World, that's not rest. That's amusement and it's draining. You come back more tired than when you left. So I'm not talking about amusement here, I'm talking about recreation. An activity that sparks creativity, painting, playing a music instrument, writing, going fishing. A shift of your time to focus off the daily grind where your heart has a moment to take a breath and enjoy the creation of God. The fourth one, probably the most important, relationships. So reflection, rest, recreation, relationships. You are a relational being. You were created in the image of God. The Trinity, three in one. When God made man, he said it is not good for man to be alone. So he created someone for man to be with. Making quality time for your family, for your friends, where you could learn, where you could receive encouragement and give encouragement, and where you could walk through the valleys with people is of vital importance to your heart health. Having relationships, healthy relationships in good boundaries are a gift from God, and it's a way that you can protect your heart. So reflect, rest, recreation, relationships that's how you protect your heart the people here didn't want anything to do with god for one reason their hearts had grown cold towards them they didn't guard their hearts and if you're going to be a person who believes that god is in control that god is in control you need to guard your heart so that flight after navigating all these storms and high clouds because someone was in control we arrived at our destiny safe 
sound, whole. Some of us didn't even know anything that was going on. But I had my eyes out on the window the whole time. And as I was seeing those clouds and us just going around them, I thought, man, this is what God does. We don't know how to navigate. We don't know the journey. We don't know what's ahead of us. Because in our seat, in our seat, we're not in control. We want control. You want to be the one behind the wheel. But in the end, you're not. God is. But I thank God, just like a pilot was in control of the plane that day, God is the one who's in control of our lives. Amen? Amen. Can we stand together?